Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast, where we're going to be talking about deconstruction. My name's Ryan, and Janelle and I are back at it again. Two different cities, yet we can see each other here because of technology online. Uh, we used to record back in the basement in the flesh, so if the sound is different, that just has to do with uh, being in different spaces. So I'm in Waco, Janelle's in Denver, and we're still probably deconstructing 2020 yeah. to 2022, the time that that the <laughs> world the world did something. And yeah, I I moved almost two years ago. That's crazy. Yeah, pretty wild. And in that in that time, we've had some chapters continue and some that haven't, and and that's part of it. I've talked to a lot of my pastor friends and their churches. Some of them don't even know how many people are in their church and doing church. And so that's happened to us too, Brew Theology. But I will say that we started a chapter here in Waco. That's been fun. Um, there's been another chapter that just started recently as well in the Florida area. And then, yeah, people are always interested. There's another one that's going to come up in Columbus, Georgia. So if you are interested in doing a Brew Theology, whether that's at a pub, brewery, coffee house, or just even online through Zoom, let us know. We'll hook you up with some material and leadership guides and all that stuff. So email Janelle at brewtheology.org, Ryan at brewtheology.org. You can find us on Twitter or brew underscore theology. And then Facebook and Instagram is at brewtheology. So and you can find all the other local chapters across the country too through us if you'd like. So today, Janelle, this is something that's that's heavy on on your heart and on my heart. And it's it kind of comes and, and comes and goes. This this word deconstruction. This idea, yeah. concept, this movement that it won't go away and, and people are still talking about it. I feel like we've talked about it so many times and yet that's okay because there are some people who are doing this for the very first time. And recently I had a friend, he didn't even know what the word was. And then when I explained it to him, he said, oh, well, that makes sense. Now I have a word for what people are going through, including myself. Yeah. People need words, I guess. Words definitely help. And I think it's it's interesting to me that when, you know, you and I started going through this, this wasn't even the word. I mean, it was we kind of had to make up a word at that point. I know for me and we'll talk more about this. Um, uh, the idea of faith shift has been language that I've really liked um, to describe my journey. So, yeah, yeah I, I mean, it's Doug Paget used the word flip a while back. Yeah. Yeah, so people are just different words for whatever you're going through. I think maybe when when I was more more academically studying this, it was it was postmodernism and yep. and emer emergence and emerging. And I know this is all part of the history of this, but yeah, deconstruction is now I guess the word that most people use. But now it's so cliche. It's kind of like, what do you mean when you say that? Right. Uh, you mean lots of different things, and it's got negative baggage and yet positive for a lot of people. So how about we start with, let's start with our stories and then kind of move out from there and, and, and kind of deal with more of the words and the concepts and the stages. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. You want to go first? Or do you want me to? Okay, I guess I'll go first. <laughs> it's funny when you're in a small group and nobody wants to, nobody looks up. <laughs> in our Waco chapter, and I said, guys, in 30 minutes, I'm, I'm going to have to get you guys to shut up. It's always the hard, hardest time is the beginning when... Nobody wants to be called on to answer the first question. And then the next thing you know, everyone's, you know, diving in and talking all over the place. So I'll start. And gosh, my, so I, as, as many of y'all know, who've listened to the podcast, who, who know our stories, I did grow up Southern Baptist. And so that was my foundation. That was my construct. That was my, my ideological framework for how I saw the world. So the way I, the way I understood God, the way I understood scripture was based from that lens of a of a true white straight male southern baptist in texas and all the politics go along with that and it, it, a lot of the time it's just sort of what you're born into and what you breathe so you can't you can't distinguish one from the other it's just that's this is what this is how people should think because this is how i was raised and you really can't blame children for this Right. So you think about people think about their their childhood and, and my mine specifically, or any any children's background. Uh, I think a lot of uh, fundamentalism, like so, the fundamentals of of how they how they how they develop before puberty. Like a lot of people are going to have a very binary black and white world. Now having two kids, one who's nine and 
and then one who's five. It's, it's funny watching that, that maybe that's okay. Cause that's just part of how development works. Yeah. Now the, the sad part about that is if that foundation is, is traumatic or is too tribal or, you know, toxic in any ways. And, and so I don't think I would have called mine tra- traumatic. I didn't have a traumatic experience. It was definitely tribal. So that would have been a big thing for me was, was seeing that when I was in college, um, I transferred from UT to, to uh, UT Austin to Baylor. And I re I refound faith. You know, it was one of those, one of those typical college moments where I, Oh Lord, I am a sinner. I, I, I had my own Damascus experience and I saw the light. What uh, <laughs> woe is me a sinner? You know, I mean, that, that's a story that I, I've heard my whole life. So now I'm experiencing it as a college kid and, and all that was fine. And I, if, but of course in that, I, the only thing I knew was that background. So I was like, no drinking, no drugs, no, you know, like, no sex, no, all the things that were bad, you know? And so like, and I had to get my jars of clay on <laughs> and get rid of my secular music. And uh, so it was kind of funny how like, let this just, again, all I knew was to go to a Christian bookstore and start reading Christian things. And then I got, I switched my major to religion. But interestingly in that, I took a Baptist history class here at Baylor University with Dr. Rosalie Beck. She's now retired. And she was a Southern Baptist uh, professor who went to Southwestern back in the day. <laughs> Remember her, and, and I apologize, if, you know, if this is not public. Well, she said it in class. She was trying to encourage all of us not to go to Southwestern. <laughs> <laughs> and I was kind of confused because that was my track. That was sort of, well, if I was going to be in ministry and turn my life to God, it was going to be that, it was going to be done that road. And, she, and I was like, well, well, you know, why not? And she said, because I lived it so that women don't have to live that. And so I'm now, you know, she was basically trying to, to, to teach Baptist history and seeing the, the oppressive side of women and females and, you know, who are, who are not allowed in the pulpit. And she told the stories of, of Truett. There's a seminary named after him now in that Baylor. And he was one of the, at his time, more of the progressive minded people. There was probably a different word back then, allowing women yeah. at Southern Baptist, uh, what do you call them? The conventions that they would have every year. And these men would stand up and turn their backs and he would reprimand them. So like back in the day, you know, Truett, Truett was a, a renegade. He was a trail, trailblazer. And so Dr. Beck would tell us these stories and, and just tell the women, hey, do something different. Don't do what I did. It's so horrible if you go there because women are basically second-class citizens and, and there's no true equality. And so that got my mind spinning initially um, in, with, with, with a religious background. So I didn't stay Baptist for very long. So a lot of my shift my deconstruction started with, yeah, of course women can preach. And so I started to, but for me, it had, it had to be, it had to biblically make sense because I was Baptist. So the Bible was very, very critical. And so I had to look at all these passages of, you know, what, what was the context happening? What was Paul speaking to and what was going on? And so you know, reading Ephesians with Ephesus in mind, not just the book, like, People think of Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. Like, no, what was happening in these places that the letters are based on? And that was that was very mind blowing. So st- studying the text, not literally, but contextually, mm-hmm. created that that shift. And it was an academic shift based on I think my heart that knew that there was that my God was bigger than just men preaching. Yeah. It. And so then I went to sem- welcome back evangelical seminary because it's still it's, it's kind of all I knew. But I, I do believe that moving from Baylor to the Denver Seminary was a it was a big leap versus Baylor to Southwestern. If I would have gone that road, I would have been very different. Yeah. In your seminary, even though it's an evangelical seminary, you had Presbyterians and Methodists and Anglicans and all these different kinds of, of, of ways of, of doing faith and theology that I, I was taken aback of all I knew was Southern Baptist. So it, it expanded my, you know, my, my evangelicalism, my theology. And then my first job at a seminary that was full-time was at a UMC church. And I remember specifically going in back to my home church and one of the sweet mothers who, you know, here, here I was seminary, <laughs> and, oh, my, you know, my mom's like, my son just got a job. And, oh, where are you working? Oh, San Antonio. And what's the church? And I had said this United Methodist church and the look on this woman's face in particular. And I know <laughs> I can see it right now. She's like, oh, kind of like 
okay, well, you're, you're just going to convert them to the Baptist ways, right? The you know, so they can get the truth. <laughs> it was, it, and, and she was she was joking but serious at the same time. And yeah. I, I'll, I'll never forget that moment of being. I, was, I didn't understand what she was talking about, but I think because I worked in a Methodist church out of seminary, so it was a. I, you could look back and you could see, oh, this is of course Ryan is the way he is today based on the story because i had a pastor at that point for five years who allowed me to continually read things outside of what i was raised in so i think it was during that time that the emergent convention or village emergent village came yep. out of the convention and i went to that <clears throat> again the pastor that i had he, he allowed me to do these things read these books you know and go go to events where brian mclaren and doug paget and tony jones were speaking and and i uh I just felt I fell in love with um, with with God through different different types of you know ways ways of thinking and and living and experiences and so it got me in touch with different people. So my mine was just kind of gradual and um, you know so what started as more of that complementarian versus egalitarian bit theologically for me moving from you know women can preach obviously to a seminary that was more expansive than Baptist to then you know, the, the emergent stuff. So that was, that. those were the initial turns and shifts. And then, you know, um, it just continued on. So it's, it's funny yeah. that here I am as, as those that know, I call myself an evolving Anabaptist method, Eucostal, cause I've gleaned from them throughout the years. I've been allowed to do that. I've had the freedom to do that, but also with an open interfaith world. And I think the interfaith part was, was just brutal theology the last seven years of doing this. And then um, seeing that God, or whatever you want to call God can work through different people's lives and, and speak to me in ways that are much bigger than my old framework. So that's, yeah. that's mine in a nutshell. And there's a lot that's happened in the last, gosh, since 1998 when I started ministry. So a lot's happened in that, in that time frame. Yeah, yeah. for sure. But if, if you're never open to what somebody else has to say and another, and a book that somebody has to offer you, and then you're probably going to stay the same. And some people are fine just staying in the same world. Yeah. You know? And I just think maybe I'm not wired that way. Yeah. And I think once, at least in my, for part of my story, once you start opening that door and start letting some other ideas in, it's really hard to close that. Really hard to go back to where you were once you've seen something else. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? You got to tell us your story now. Yeah. So, so I was born and raised in the Church of the Nazarene in probably uh, one of the more conservative parts of the church in the uh, lower Michigan area. So the the little quadrant of Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, and Michigan right on the borders there uh, is, is kind of a, a part of the country that was known for having holiness wars about who could be more holy than everybody else. And in this context, that means... Um, Basically, who could uh, dress the most uh, modestly, wear the least amount of jewelry, have the best moral behavior, um, and strive to do that better than everybody else around you. And I didn't learn that piece until I was much older, actually, while I was in seminary. But um, it was it has helped me understand how a lot of what I experienced fed into my already type A type personality. So I like to say now, looking back, that like conservative Nazarendom and my personality were made for each other because uh, Nazarenes strive for spiritual perfection or holy perfection and holiness. And I was really good at, you know, doing trying to do everything perfect. And so when you meld those two things together, it unfortunately in my experience, created a pretty toxic mess of uh, trying to control everything and trying to make everything line up just so. And you can do that for a while. And like you said, there are people that stay in that and do that their entire lives and they're fine. Um, but that started to break down for me. And I went to a very conservative college, which I will not name because they are a propaganda machine now which is very embarrassing to me. And um, then I, as soon as I, I got my call to preach in college and in my tradition, getting that call to preach is part of your uh, faith story going forward. You need to be able to articulate the specific 
moment when you were called to preach in order to kind of justify why you're becoming a pastor. And so I um, had that moment and the school I was at was actually not friendly to women preachers. So I did some of that work while I was in college of like, where does our heritage come from and why do we allow this? And kind of settled that piece of it. Unfortunately, as many of us experience in evangelicalism, uh, some doctrines that we say we believe we don't actually live out very well. And women in ministry can be one of those areas where we, we can give you all the biblical arguments and we can, we can tell you why this is important to us. But when it comes to putting a candidate in front of a church board, it's not necessarily going to, to go the way that you hope it will. So being the dedicated, faithful Nazarene that I was, I just kept moving forward. And we went to seminary and we were broke. And so then we took some Bible college classes and just kept working towards ordination and doing all the things. And we did that for years. And so, Ryan, you mentioned emergence. And I think you probably came into it right as it was starting. For me, during that or like that turn of 2000, I was not yet like even aware that that was a thing. So I was doing some creative things in ministry, but I didn't have any concept that anyone else was, to be honest. It wasn't until probably the late 2000s that I started doing some prayer type things with labyrinths and candles and then stumbled onto something that talked about the emergent church where they talked about labyrinths and candles. And I'm like, wait a minute, I'm not the only one doing this. You know, like it really, and I think that's a great example of the fishbowl that I was in. And I, I like to use that example that, that my tradition is kind of a fishbowl that's painted black on the inside and black on the outside. Um, you can scratch at the surface to try to see out, but unless someone else has scratched on the outside, you're stuck. And that kind of creative ministry was one of those little glimpses that let me see there was a bigger world out there. I, it may be hard for people to believe, but I really was like, I was Nazarene to my core and I did not stray outside of that bubble. And the, the only influences that came from outside were Christian radio, Christian music, which might have a little different theology, but that was my whole world. Uh, Ryan can attest to that I do not know any 90s music um, because I didn't, I, I was all, it was all Christian all the time. Don't ever do, bring Janelle to your trivia night, it's 90s. No, <laughs> there's, there's nothing there. Unless we're ever doing it, we should do a CCM Trivial Pursuit, and I can totally win that one for sure. So anyway, all of that to say, like, I didn't, I, I would say my, there was some dissatisfaction um, trying to piece together things that didn't make sense, but I didn't have any words for any of that until about 2010. And then I went through an experience um, with a group of people that, kind of opened the door to see some of the things that didn't line up in my tradition. And then that was also a time in my life where I really encountered a gay Christian man that I met that was a friend of mine. And he asked me to go through the scriptures with him and look at the passages that forbid that. And the way that that played out for me at that time in my life is I very much resonated with like, wait, this is exactly what they do to women. And I knew all those scriptures because I had refuted them. And so in refuting, in doing that piece, and then meeting this person and walking through and doing that for him, that was probably a big turning point for me of realizing, wait, people are using scripture to say what they want, not what it necessarily means to lots of people. From there, it was just a lot like what you said, reading, um, starting to see what else is going on, starting to see that, oh, wait, there are other people that are going to heaven beside Nazarenes, and starting to let that filter in and shape uh, a little more of my understanding and it's been a long process. I mean, I would say I still have moments where this is, is coming to light um, 
in my life and the interfaith has been a, was another huge step that I'm really thankful for. Um, I have to say though, Ryan and I, our, our, uh, pod pod master, when we first started was Dan and Dan deconstructed in like three years. And I was so jealous because he like, he came from almost my same tradition and then had gone through like everything and, and came out the other side in many ways, very quickly. And these uh, have, have more, um, I guess it's more knowledge at their fingertips and yeah, I don't know. It just could be could be a generational thing. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I think, yeah, having here's the thing with deconstruction now. I mean, you've got books and podcasts and articles that aren't just something you have to go like to a library to get. They're on your phone with you all the time. You can do all of this stuff instantly. And that just wasn't our experience. We really had to. We could read books, but then we had to have encounters with like other ways of doing things. And today that's not really what is required. The encounters help, but you can be listening to podcasts and people's stories and really get a sense of like how things are changing, even if you're not like in the building with them. So I think that's a big difference for sure. Yeah, the the, the digital age has has definitely sped things up for sure. So let's um, let's actually talk about these these different ways in which we can shift. And we've mentioned these just in our conversation, just of our our stories. But starting with Kathy's some of Kathy's work with just more of yeah. the, the stages of a faith shift, and then we'll move on to kind of more of an uh, an awakening of awareness of of social justice issues, and then lastly, some of the uh, the trauma and and abuse and, and some of those examples. And then, yeah, we'll just see where the conversation takes us, but um, to kind of give people words and systems and you're a process. Well, yeah. I say processes, not I'll say process theology. I mean, pro, you're a process person. <laughs> the yeah. mode, stage one, stage two, stage three. And that's, I think it's helpful for a lot of people and, and seeing these words that Kathy has laid out are, are really good. So we, we did talk to Kathy, which episode was that? Uh, episodes 26 and 27. Back when we were saying we had a microphone in the middle of the room, <laughs> the sound quality probably sounds like this. <laughs> it, it may, but uh, yeah, Kathy Escobar, if you haven't heard of her, she is a phenomenal person. She actually is out here in Colorado uh, with with me. Actually, she's about a mile from my house is where they have their the refuge, which is their community. And she wrote a book called Faith Shift. If you haven't run into that, I still highly recommend it uh, for the the way that she goes about addressing these issues and um ryan you want to each of us talk through it or you just want me to give them the terms quick yeah we, we can go through the terms and then maybe just to kind of break them down a little bit so she starts off with this word fusing is her first one it's getting to know your belief system which is kind of funny because it sounds like well shouldn't you know your belief system <laughs> so what does she mean by by Fusing, like that first initial part of getting to know your belief system, being more being more aware of what you were raised in or what you thought initially. Um, it's yes, but it's also totally applies to the person that's born and raised in one tradition, and you fuse that system into who you are mm -hmm. as you grow. So it's for me being Nazarene. I was in church, you know, the week after I was born. I was fused into Nazarendom from the beginning. Right, right. So and, yeah, just, just like me and my Southern Baptist yep. ness. Southern Baptistness is that a thing? Word. So then we that that's kind of self-explanatory. Then our fusing. So then we have this shifting that we refer to, and this is when we start asking questions, which is dangerous when you ask questions. But also human, you know. And so she, this is kind of a wobbly up and down wavy line in the little diagram she draws, because we all ask questions, and um, as we we do that, we start traveling, you know, through our faith in a different way, and then at some point, you know, you'd have to make a decision: Do I continue with this, or or do I? retrench and so returning is the word that she uses that you'll question for a while and then you hit that decision point and you many people 
I think I did this many times, Ryan, you probably went through this a few times where you return back to the fused location uh, where the world makes sense. I know how to do this. This is what my faith is. And you can do that for years. I mean, some people do that their whole lives and that's, that's just part of the process. So do you think most, most of that is just, uh, because we like to live in absolutes and we like to live in, in a, in a tribe that makes sense to us, that makes us feel like we can sleep better at night and you don't want to rock the boat because there's almost like a psychological component of, of a mother and a father, whether that's your literal mother and father or your spiritual community are your mothers and fathers, you know? So right. for some, it literally is their mom and their dad, even if their mom and dad have passed, like there's still that sense of like, I have to please them. Yep. And brothers who are like, well, no, not really my mom and dad, but it's, but it, but it is it, a, a spiritual community that the, the mom and dad metaphor still applies to that. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a normal human thing. We find a social place that we belong to. We have community around that and leaving that is really, really difficult. And um, in fact, uh, you know, looking at that in the face of some of the things that have happened with COVID, uh, Shankar Vedantam, who wrote The Hidden Brain, which you've heard me talk about, his new book was Useful Delusions. And it's exactly about this, that there are things we're willing to trade in order to fit into a community. And religion is one of those examples. I might be willing to trade living with a few doubts in order to stay in community with the people that I've always had. And that's just a human thing. I mean, it's pretty normal. And you, and you just sort of a conventional wisdom says, don't bring up these things at the dinner table. So yep. then you bring these things up with the church board, with the church pastors. And I mean, I, I've even heard, and this is going to sound mind blowing to a lot of people, but perhaps others are like, of course, there are a lot of pastors in the pulpit that are agnostic. Yep. And Lots. That, that really shakes people a bit. Well, how can my pastor be agnostic? <laughs> I mean, or, your, or that pastor just doesn't, doesn't believe half of the things in your creedal statements or your doctrinal books that you have. Yeah. You know, but they go along with it because it's just what you do. People who even, they get ordained in certain denominations and they, they basically lie to the committees. Okay. Yep. I can say the words if I need to. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's, this is, it's important to say this now and I'll probably bring it up again. Like, one of the critiques of deconstruction right now is that, oh, well, you never cared about your faith. I call bullshit on that. Those of us that are that are deconstructing in this way are often the people that cared most deeply about our faith. And that's what goes for these pastors you're mentioning. When you care deeply about your faith and try to understand it and try to wrestle through things that don't make sense, you're not always going to get the answer that you expected. That's, that's just normal. And so to be dismissed as you guys never cared about your faith is really disingenuous because that's just not true. Not at oh, all. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I would, I would agree. And I, uh, 110% for sure. Cause I, I can't think of, I, I can think of so many different examples of people who are completely devoted to their faith and then hit some kind of a wall, whether it was an academic wall and experience and, yeah. and, and this unraveling you know, did take place this, this so, and they didn't, they didn't want to re return, you know? And so then, so this moves us to this next word that she has here is uh, it's shifting again. So then you're like, you, you came back, but you're like, oh, I can't stay back with the, with, you know, with this tribe and this way of thinking. So then there's a, there's a new shift after that, you know? And is that where that line, the, the lines are wiggly and squiggly and up and down. It's well, and that's when you unravel is the next step as you kind of fall off the cliff of, you know, you, you've tried, you've gone back, you're still questioning and you unravel. And, you know, this is another thing that just is irritating me currently about the discussion right now. This isn't a choice for most people. You get to this place of unraveling when you just can't force it to stay in the box anymore. It, it isn't something that you can just magically like make go away. Uh, when you unravel, when you have to face the things that are changing within you and within your understanding, it's, it's hard and it's unpredictable 
And so when you unravel, this can look different for everybody. For some people, it might be really systematic. They might go back to school and study religion again to see if they can figure out. It might be related to things going on around them. So, I mean, COVID, isolation, the politicization between families, all of that is big stuff that's been happening in the last two years that absolutely can cause you to unravel because the things you thought were sure, the people you thought you knew, when they're just acting completely different than you ever expected, of course you have questions. We're not robots, you know, so so that unraveling happens and then the squiggly lines are the rebuilding when you start to create, I, I don't know, how would you describe it like, a new framework or some people call it a, a reconstruction. So deconstruction eventually is we have to reconstruct something. So if you just deconstruct your entire life, uh, it's, it's going to be, well, and, and maybe people just end up being just nihilists and pessimists and cynics and, or, you know, you can, there's a list of things that you could be if you were just a deconstructioner <laughs> your whole life. But I think if you want if you're a person like I would say myself and other people have some hope, you know, you want, you want, you want something and it's going to maybe look a little similar to what you had. Um, but it's going to, but yeah, so, but you might change the words, you know, you might change, but so here's what I found. It's, it's interesting though, with, with this rebuilding, is it, if we're not careful, we can rebuild something that could just might be the, the same thing that we had, but it's, um, it's kind of like how you see Republicans and Democrats are really the same, the same in a lot of ways. Yeah. Conservatives are really the same in a lot of ways. Um, Theists and atheists are really the same in a lot of ways. They're just, it's almost like you've become the same fundamentalist just on the other side of it. So then, I mean, for instance, what, Brian McLaren was really helpful for me because he used to use this phrase, and I don't know if you still have it's called a generous orthodoxy. Yeah. And so he, he would take things from all the different faith traditions. And I mean, Lauren asked me, she's like, is that where you got it from? The Anabaptist Method Jucostal deal? I said, no, I don't, I don't, but perhaps maybe subconsciously, that Brian was always like, cause I read so much of his stuff throughout the years that maybe that, but I don't, I mean, I don't specifically say, Oh, Brian said this, but I'm going to do it with when I, when I say my thing. Um, but you, you look at your Baptist background, your Nazarene background or your, whatever it is. And you say, well, these are things that I've gleaned from that, that I, that can move with me. Um, after I've unraveled and after I've, you know, shred all this other stuff, but I, I can bring this with me to this new phase of my life. But yeah, it's uh, I think that that's probably more helpful than just going, completely the other way. And I've seen people do this where it's just, there's a complete sever severance yeah. and it's almost like an anti-movement. So then you become anti-Southern Baptist or anti-Nazarene or, you know, or, or anti, like an, an atheist. Uh, there are different kinds of atheists as we've experienced throughout the years. Yeah. There's the, the, the new atheism is um it's an angry atheism, you know? Um, but there's also a healthy atheism out there or a, um, People who are like a spiritual or a religious who are just kind of like, maybe they're a little indifferent because they're not, that, that's not, but, but they're also embracing the people who are in those worlds. Like, right. oh, it's, you know, it's, it's somebody's like, I'm not against your thing. I'm just, I'm just not Baptist anymore. Yeah. Well, and I think we've seen with our amazing group of people in brew theology is that being agnostic or atheist, it does not make you a bad person. Like, I know that's the line that I was always fed. Like, there's no way you can be a good person without without God, quote unquote. Well, sorry, guys, that's just not true. Uh, we have amazing friends that don't claim any sort of specific faith tradition. But wait, they're, they're showing up because they still care about how the world works. They still care about what people think. They still care about how making sense of the world and how it all fits together. And they're doing that differently than I do that. And that's great. I mean, I am so thankful to have had this wider vision and, and just seen the many ways that we can talk about spirituality and religion in this world. So unraveling and rebuilding doesn't mean that you lose God, but it might mean that your view of God changes significantly and that's okay. It doesn't make you a bad person. Yeah. I think, I think the part that's, that can be very difficult because, because we've talked about the tribal social aspect of this is that you, and you have mentioned this in, in previous podcasts. I remember that you might not be allowed to sit at those tables anymore. 
Now they may say that you're welcome, but you're you don't have a voice anymore. Right. Um, so yeah, people, like ministers or, or people in ministry who maybe would not be allowed to go back to those places and present or teach a Sunday school class or whatever it yep. may be. You know, you can say, well, I just want to go back and be with my friends. Well, they might, you know, they might not want you to leave anymore. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're going to lead them all astray to the pits of hell. Uh, uh, yeah. Yikes. So do you, do you think that people need to have a, a reconstruction or a rebuilding? Or is that me putting my thoughts on this because that's who i am because um, I, I said that in a way that was like oh of course you have to rebuild you have to reconstruct but i mean do you, or do you think um i think, you think i think practically most people rebuild into something like they have their own rhythms their own ways of working through the world and their own ways of gaining knowledge and wrestling with the things that the questions they have but no you don't have to rebuild if you don't want to. I think though most people probably find some sort of order that they put that in. So a lot of people will find that in politics or social activism. Yep, they move into areas where they can live out the values that they've fought. So I think that's one thing that happens is as you go through this unraveling, you start to really understand what's important to you. What are the things that matter to you? One way that I talk about this is love your neighbor, which is very Christian and is in pretty much every other religion too. And so then what does it mean to actually love my neighbor? What does it mean to live that out in actuality in a world where we have huge income inequality, we have systemic racism, we have bias against LGBTQ folks and folks of color, what does it mean to love my neighbor? And here's the funny part. Like, loving my neighbor was way easier in my fishbowl when I knew exactly what that meant. Loving my neighbor in the real world takes work and effort and thoughtfulness and intention and is challenging because humans kind of suck sometimes. But does that but does that mean somebody doesn't deserve a place to sleep or food to eat? No. That's the thing. So like Laura and my wife being a, a physician, you you have to treat everybody regardless of what they think and what they've done. And so you could have somebody in there who's done some of the worst uh, things you can imagine in society. And as a doctor, you still have to treat them the same as you would anybody else. Yeah. And I, I kind of wonder what that would look like if humans operated that way. Right. Pretty radical. I mean, so because I remember asking once, what's the what's the most difficult commandment out there? And and somebody said, easy, uh, enemy love. Like, so when you say love your neighbor, Jesus breaks that down even further saying, well, your neighbor is your enemy. It's like the person that you have the most difficult time with. So like if your literal neighbor is somebody on the completely different side of your political persuasion or theological mm -hmm. framework, you know, and just imagine that person being your neighbor. Or if you have a neighbor that has a let's go Brandon flag in their, in their front yard. I mean, Janelle, how do you handle that? <laughs> <laughs> For those that don't know who Brandon is, well, you're never you know, mind, <laughs> but uh, you know, so what, and that could be somebody who has a, this is interesting. So somebody with a, with a, a pride rainbow flag and somebody with a let's go Brandon flag, somebody with a black lives matter flag versus somebody with a uh, MAGA 2024 or, you know, yeah. Like, those are both neighbors. I mean, very different ends of, of this ex extreme American spectrum. It's. I think it's kind of funny though. I mean, I'm gonna I'm gonna digress a little bit here. <laughs> when we talk about like true enemies in the world around us, like oh, Americans are pretty petty. You know, no. what I mean, like, the rest of the world actually has enemies. I mean, in fact, Americans have have enemies if you're if you're in the military. Uh, but we're just we bicker with somebody who, you know, who thinks differently than us politically. Um, so like, it's not like our neighbors are trying to, I mean, most of us, I can't speak for all of us are, are literally trying to kill us. Right. So, right. Um, and that puts things into perspective. Granted, these are still important causes and movements and, and whatnot, but I'm always challenged in, in my deconstruction and reconstruction from this new place. Like, how do I, how do I love the people that are, who, who think drastically different in ways that I think are toxic in society? 
you know, um, how do I get to know them? Um, and, and, and still, Ooh, it's hard. I mean, you know, I got, I mean, I live in, I live in Waco, so, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, very, it's a very different world here than Denver. Yep. It is. And just to get, since we're, I've already, I already got political. You didn't, I'm sorry. I apologize. That's okay. But, you know, I used to live in a neighborhood where if you had a Trump sign or a MAGA sign, well, that, then, then you were, you know, you were the minority. I mean, it was, you were like the only one. I can't believe you put that sign up. And people would talk about you in this neighborhood that I was in. Well, now it's the opposite. So if you have yeah. a Biden sign or, you know, a rainbow, you know, a pride flag and, um, you're like, oh, I can't believe that lid that lid moved in, you know. So I choose <laughs> not to put anything in my yard. <laughs> yep. And I think, but I think a lot of that has to do with I think that's that's my conventional wisdom that says in order to to meet people where they're at, if I put a flag in my yard or a sticker on my car, uh, people are gonna judge me before they get to know me. They're gonna judge me eventually when they get to know me. But I'd rather them know me first, right? You know, know my heart. No, no. I mean, and I've got friends now. I mean, that are uh, very, very different from me in so many ways. But I, I think it's because once you sit down with people, and I, I'm convinced of this, once you sit down with people, you have a meal, you have a beer, coffee, whatever it is, and you do that over time, your theology and your politics will come out, but you, you somehow choose to look past that and you look at the person. So, and I think yeah. that's kind of, personally, I think that's a big part of a, of a healthier reconstruction is if you can get to that place. And that's, I think, what brew theology is kind of all about. But I'm, I'm sorry, I'm kind of jumping all over the place on my little, my own little soapbox there. But <laughs> well, no, I think it's, I think this is a legit response because you mentioned earlier, you know, the wisdom of don't talk politics and religion. Well, the downside of that means is we haven't grown up learning to do the work of how to talk politics and religion instead of, of facing those things that are hard to reconcile because you might have Democrats in a Nazarene church that believe very different than you. That would have been so hard for me to comprehend back then. Um, but if we, if we do the work of learning to talk through those difficult topics all the way along, it makes this transition less drastic. You know, we need to, life is not easy things. Life is not just talking about the good stuff. Life is all the things. And I think that's one of the weaknesses of the modern church is that we're pretending that those difficulties don't exist. That's not being authentic to our humanity. Mm -hmm. and, and I am not saying is this is someone that has mastered this at all. Okay, this is still a huge struggle for me. And I have a very, Ryan knows, I have a very hard time with people that dehumanize other humans. Um, and that makes me angry. And I want to speak up and, and be loud about that. But in that, I still have to learn how to do that in a way that builds relationship. And that's hard work takes energy. Yeah. And it's it, a lot of times it's just easier to just flip the switch and turn it off and say, I don't have time for you. And, and, and sometimes we have to allow ourselves to say, I don't have time for this person. Right. This person is, is literally suffocating my ability to enjoy life. Um, and so I want people to make sure they, they hear me in the right posture. I think you have to be in a really good headspace and heart space to engage in those quote unquote enemy Right. I'll say adversarial uh, humans and conversations because if you're not in a healthy space, then uh, that could that could destroy destroy you and deconstruct you to a worse worse of person than um, than you're you know and you hate for people to do that or or, or there's some trauma in their life and they're, they they yep. haven't unpacked that yet so just guarding your heart would be the thing that we would have said back in the day yeah so, but it's okay to do that it's fine um, if, if it's not if you're not in a place to do that that that's okay. You know, yeah. back away, back away from the table if you need to. <laughs> yeah, and I think this this starts to approach like another thing that at least was in the culture I was in of needing to, you know, make sure that you serve everybody, you you serve everybody in the congregation equally, and while we would like have a, a you know an an elective class on boundaries especially in ministry, I wasn't really allowed to practice that. The expectation was you need to treat everybody the same. Well, some people take more energy than others. Some are not healthy people. They haven't dealt with some of the other things that they've been through. And so this 
you know, I think has led to a lot of people being hurt in the church. And that's part of the part of what's going on in deconstruction is, is the way that I've been treated or is the way that I lived my life healthy? Was it good for me? Was it God honoring in the way that I was, I was functioning? And I think sometimes it's really hard when we have to look at those behaviors and go, no, actually that wasn't good for God and it wasn't good for me either. And we can't just write off those experiences that people have. There's a weird connection here between like, you know, awakening to some of these social justice issues and then also how that connects into how we behave in the church and the things that kind of hide that. Part of the reason that social justice becomes part of the conversation is because we've spent a lot of time in the church pushing away things that are difficult to deal with. And that's kind of what we've been trained to do both both individually and culturally. So then when we start dealing with social justice things, we also start seeing where there was abuse and trauma and bad behavior inside the church. And that that's just hard to it's a lot of stuff to figure out in this deconstruction space. Yeah, that's I mean that would be where hopefully we as 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 faith leaders and activists and whatever that, that you would claim to be out there that, that are listening would be willing to say, here's a resource file of, of counselors and therapists, <laughs> people who can help you work through this and some community groups or some you know, um, AA or Al-Anon or what, I mean, just, there's, there's a list of, of resources out there at our disposal, but say, it's okay to go get help. Yeah. And what you experienced in this, in this, uh, you know, faith tradition was a, man, it was an anti-faith. There are, there are some bad religion and, and toxic theology out there that just, you're right, needs to just be gone. And, those, and, and I think that's why the, the recent Mars Hill Christianity Today Mars Hill podcast I think it was so helpful because at least now the biggest megaphone out there in the evangelical world, or at least one of the biggest Christianity today, at least they're talking about this. And that right. was, those that don't know, or, you know, are not familiar that dealt with Marshall church out of Seattle with Mark Driscoll and, and all the st- countless stories throughout the years of people who had um, had a horrible experience under that traumatic, toxic leadership. But those kinds of churches do exist. And I think that sadly, I mean, um, that's a lot of people's story of deconstruction and it is yeah. in those places. I, I, I don't have that experience. I know, uh, Janelle, you, you, you do more so than, um, but you know, there's some stories out there that are just like so heartbreaking. And like, I can't believe, I mean, it'd be hard to have any kind of faith after hearing some of those stories. Yeah. Um, and that, and I think that would be okay to say, hey, it's it's okay. Like, don't feel like you need to have a faith yet. Like, you know, and people say mm-hmm. you got to get back to Jesus. Like, well, maybe these people, maybe, maybe they don't right now. I mean, like, Jesus, Jesus is bigger than us saying that we need to get back to Jesus. You know, like, Jesus, if God, if 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 we believe in a God that's that big and expansive, and Jesus's love that is that that great, I think Jesus would be okay with these people dealing with their shit on yeah. their own. You know, so I think that's maybe a problem too is that we rush. And I can be that way, rushing people back. Well, get better, you know, like you can do it. Just get over yourself. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, the, like the, the, the man in me, the white American man of like, let's just <laughs> get, back, get back up. You know, you got knocked off the horse, get back on that horse and ride again. Um, and that can, that, that, that's not good either. To maybe some people just like let them, let them sit on the sidelines for a bit. It's okay. And let people go get other kinds of help. You know, I think what's it, it's interesting because Christianity Today ran that, you know, that whole podcast on Mars Hill. And then at the same time, they're publishing articles on deconstruction and how this is just, you know, this is the easy way out or you want to sin or wh- the writers clearly have not spent any time listening to real people going through this process. And I think that's really disingenuous because especially with what you just mentioned right now, when people are coming out of traumatic experiences, there's a whole lot there to unravel and it's going to take time. And it is not because they want to sin more. It's because the whole foundation of what their life was built on has fallen apart. I think it's really important to say that even if you didn't come from Mars Hill, you might have experienced some sort of abuse or trauma at the hands of a church. 
And it is okay for you to go deal with that, especially if you came from a place that uh, really preached about purity culture and that whole subset of teachings. You're going to have to unravel that. Um, You're going to have to figure out what it means to be human in a different way. And that's okay. You know, one theme that I've seen recently pop up a lot, and I resonate with this, is the church used up all of my energy in those 20s and 30s. They just kept using and taking and using. And now I'm in my 40s and I'm tired. <laughs> and I can't. There's no getting that back. And when I left my tradition, there wasn't even anyone to say goodbye. And that's really painful when you dedicate your life to a way of being when you you're in a a rhythm, a pattern of life that revolves around the church. And when you really start to question or really start to realize what's happened to you, no one even cares when you leave. And that kind of spiritual gaslighting and ghosting is so toxic and harmful. You have to go figure out what to do with that. And that that's going to look different for everybody. And so I would just encourage you, you know, honestly, go get a counselor, not a Christian one. Talk with other people. There are lots of groups online where you can talk to people that are going through this. Just keep asking questions and reading and doing the stuff. But you did go, you may have in your experience gone through a really difficult experience with the church and you're not, you're not abnormal. It happens too much too many ways. Yeah. The, the church and people of faith need to do a better job of validating people's experiences and hearing them and having compassion and then uh, giving them, giving people space. So like you said, if it's not a Christian counselor, that could, that could be the right move. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, and that's why you know, a lot of people leave, they leave their faith completely because of these experiences and, I get it. I get it. It makes sense. It's really hard. It's hard to make sense of. I know uh, we there's a new documentary out there called Jesus Music, and it's about contemporary Christian music and kind of how it evolved. And I knew it was out there and I just could not stomach watching it. And I finally was able to last week. And it was it was not as as triggering as I thought it would be. But that, I mean, that's a simple example of like, I, I knew when it first came out, I couldn't handle it. I just was not in a headspace to in, engage with that kind of material. And if you're going through this process, you're going to have lots of things like that. It was really weird, Ryan. I was uh, in there. Michael W. Smith talks about his that first praise and worship album that came out in 2001. And like Baird and I sat on the couch and we're like, that was a whole different life. Like that was just a whole different world that we were in then when we look back at it now. Um, But it was kind of, it was interesting because it did pull up the emotions of like what it was like to sing those songs back then in that moment. It was so interesting to me to encounter that. And, and for Bridget, just so you know, the Amy Grant did an amazing job in that documentary, and I loved watching her. So, <laughs> uh, for those that don't know, yeah, uh, Br- Bridget's one of our friends from the Wild Goose Festival, and uh, Bridget Bryan or Rob, the Raleigh Raleigh Durham uh, area there in NC. So, I uh, hope you guys are doing well. We we did experience Amy Grant together yep. back in the day a few years ago. Um, that was good times. Good times. We so you know what's so funny about that? So remember when we were kids. Well, you you might not because you weren't allowed to listen to these kinds of, of bands and artists. And there would be some like R&B, hip hop, whatever on the radio. And they'd have some, you know, pretty, the content was, the lyrics, let's just say, were questionable, a little, little nasty, risque for young <laughs> young children. Yeah. But you hear kids say, especially Christian kids would say, well, I like the beat. It's not the lyrics, it's the beat. You know what I mean? And, and I remember parents be like, no, the, ly- you know, the lyrics are bad. Well, I wonder about that with Christian music too, with that same kind of example. And we, we said things like, cause the songs in the, especially like when Christian contemporary Christian music got big, they started to be pretty well produced and, and mm-hmm. like getting more modern up to speed with the regular people, even though you and I can both say 
if we hear Christian music, you can still spot it out. It's called Godar. We know when it's yes, happening. Yes, immediately. But it, got, but it got better. It did get better. It did get better. But the lyrics are still like so somewhat painful. And I mean, I don't know how many people I've talked to throughout the years where I would be in church singing songs and I would just you know, not sing a line or change the words to a line. And Lauren would occasionally look at me when we were first married. And then now she knows it's just what I do or if I don't, or I don't sing at all anymore sometimes. Cause like, I can't really sing these things. So it's not just the beat, it's the lyrics and, but they shape us and they shape yeah. us subconsciously. And I think that honestly worship music, those are the biggest theologians of the church, the modern church era. And perhaps they always have been. So what we're writing and what people are singing, uh, they're going to remember way more of that. Even if, even if they don't remember what they sang, it's going to be embedded yep. more so than, than the sermons up there. So I think perhaps some churches do this well. They rewrite songs. They write new songs. But man, if we're still singing the same old songs, we haven't done our deconstruction any service whatsoever. Right. Yeah. Well, and I know that there are, you know, people that are, churches that sing the worship songs we were singing in 2000 and that's where they're at now. And I'm just like, yeah. it kind of blows my mind. I mean, it's hard for people to, to sing new things, but we do it every day, every year when they, when, whether it's the Grammys that come out, yeah. brand new songs you may have heard on the radio a thousand times, but it's different than the year before. So why can't we do that in church? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, we don't I, talk about Bruno. We, <laughs> did, you see, did you see Encanto? Yeah, it's awesome. Oh, it's so good. Oh man, we should do a whole show on Encanto. We That's should. Better. That would be fun for How sure. Soul? Like Pixar's got so there's Soul. Have you seen that one? Uh huh. We should because we, we've done a podcast on on Soul before. But yeah, we have. Before, that before that movie came out. So my children, speaking of cartoons and things that are impressionable, my kids actually do think that they were souls before they came to Earth. Like that movie has shaped their their current theology. It's interesting. Wow. I, I, I let it be like whatever. It's it's I don't know. I, who knows? Nobody knows. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to force what I think upon them. I'm like, yeah. Oh, you tell me more. You know, I'm let, letting them explore that world. And yeah. So that's that's the funny thing as a, as a parent now who's in a very different space than I was, you know, when I first started ministry and was, you know, early Christian boy back in the day, allowing my kids to experience life and culture. Yeah. De los Muertos and the movie Coco, for instance, like that's a big part of our tradition every year. And so they don't now Caroline gets it. Oh, it's, are we going to watch Coco this year? You know, and because it's uh -huh. De los Muertos around that, around that time. And, um, but back in the day, like, no, you, you never would have done that. But I think no. because, because I deconstructed, I've, I've allowed myself, oh, this is important. Let's talk about the dead. Let's talk about how we honor them and, and how we allow their, those traditions to continue on in our lives. And, uh, but that's a very brave, vulnerable space to be in as a, as a parent. I can imagine. <laughs> like, are we okay letting our kids watch this or do this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, uh, Anna, my, youngest she's five now and <laughs> she says she says the funniest things Did I, I don't know if i told you this the other day uh so and i and i apologize for anybody at the church that we go to who are listening this is not you know this is just kids being kids and I'm, yeah <laughs> you guys are cool with this but she's like she's like ah jesus stories are boring <laughs> and i was like oh. <laughs> I was like, well, we're going to get, you know, we're going to go to church. She's like, I don't want to go to church. Uh, and, and I said, well, that's what we're going to do. And she said, why can't Jesus just stay in our hearts instead of a story? You know, it's, <laughs> I don't know where she got that from. But she's like, let's just Jesus hang out here. I don't want to go learn about him and <laughs> stories about him. And uh, so, I, and I know the church we go to will hold, hold no offense to that comment, but it's just yeah. kids, kids being kids. Um, the things that, that comes out of her mouth are, cracks me up. I think there's something really cool about that too, because she definitely feels an affinity there, like that she is in that relationship and is carrying it with her. Maybe, and maybe she's just a weird kid. <laughs> I don't know. She's a pretty awesome kid. I mean, I would trust Anna's theology for sure. <laughs> she's so funny. So we we read Bible stories at night, and she she's starting to come along, you know, to it, but she's just just squirmy and moves around, you know, and then. I got my oldest 
perfect little Caroline, the nine-year-old, who's like answering every question after every story and, <laughs> and looks at Anna and kind of rolls her eyes and laughs because Anna's just <laughs> not having it at all. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, oh, oh man, sorry. I, I started talking about my kids there in deconstruction, but I think that could be part of it with like what you do with, you know, with your current faith or lack thereof or whatever that may be. How do you deal with the next generation that is they're they're going to go through a very similar, different experience because their world looks different. Yeah. You know, especially with the internet. But how we, how we handle the next generation's phase of of uh, shifting and unraveling and coming back. Like, are, are we going to be the crotchety old people, you know, old generation of all these yeah. kids these days and their, their deconstruction or whatever word that we use for that? <laughs> it's going to be a word. Who knows what it's going to be? I mean, I, I do remember even people back in my, my parents' generation when postmodern was coming back around and they're like, oh, this is stuff we dealt with back in the hippie days of college. And <laughs> yep. Like, yeah, but we're living it now. We're actually living in, the, in those worlds, in that world. Well, what cracks me up, this is a rabbit trail for a second. What cracks me up is the warnings we got in college. You and I probably got similar warnings about postmodernism and relativism and nothing will be true and we have to fight that. Um, those of you that were teaching us that, uh, maybe you need to revisit that because uh, there is truth and we're trying to tell you that <laughs> and you've kind of lost. It just baffles me how that message was so strong um, when we were being shaped, you know, in those years. And now the people teaching us that like have let go of all like much truth feels like and so i think we have to i don't know we all have to look at that carefully about um absolutes absolute statements uh might not hold for all time the way we think they do right right yeah i think it's an important reminder and to be gracious to ourselves that the, the people that we are today clearly are not the people that we once were yeah the person that we're going to be is not going to be the person that we are today so if we listen to this podcast in just even a few weeks or a few years, we're like, ah, I'm in a very different space. So of course you are. You're supposed of course. To have some grace. Have some grace on yourself. <laughs> you know, Ryan, actually, that's something that I really have thought about a lot is I, I think there was this feeling of like once you're once you're saved and you know Jesus and you figure out like how to do life, like it's going to be like that. That's the rest of your life. You're going to serve and you're going to love God. And that's just going to like form everything. And it's really, I think, good for me in a way to like have to be honest about the fact that, no, I do not like 20, 2008 Janelle very much because you know what? We're humans. We're not going to stay the same forever. I don't know if I can capture like the intensity of that, but it's okay to change, guys. Somewhere in my programming, I really got that message of like, once you figure out how to live, it's that's how it's going to be. And that's, that's not real. And we know the people that live like that. And many times they're not very pleasant. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that, that's helpful. If you, if you have grace upon yourselves, you're most likely going to have it for other people too. Yeah. I think people who are harder on other people are probably really hard on themselves. And so it's, yeah. It's a, I think we can all realize that like, yeah, when you're like fully stressed and you lash out, it's because there's something internally that you've not, you've not come to peace with within yourself. Well, I know we, we've talked a while now. We uh, have. Yeah. <laughs> so any last words on this, any words of wisdom or, or how about like resources and books out there? I mean, I know we mentioned Kathy's book. Yeah. McLaren, Brian McLaren's got some good stuff out there too. Doug, Doug Paget's does some stuff on this. There's really a lot. That's now. pretty old school, Ryan, right there. Oh, old school. <laughs> so is mine. I, I loved uh, Chasing Francis by Ian Morgan Cron, and that's 15 years old now. So <laughs> who knows? I mean, there's lots of stuff out there. We can, uh, we'll put a couple books and links into the, the notes on the podcast for you. Um, the other even, even too, so even, even like current podcasts that are out there, I mean, some of the stuff that we've done throughout the years, you're going to like, oh, you're, you're going to hear real people's voices that have been a part of our community. 
Yeah. And that, that's been a huge part of our story is, is definitely expecting with these people that we brought on to the podcast throughout the years. And, and I would also say, you know, Trip Fuller, uh, while more academic um, in, in homebrew Christianity, I would listen to a lot of his stuff because um, a lot of the topics there and the people that he brings on will help you if you, especially if you're more of the, the headspace and want to really get nerdy with your theology. Go yeah. For that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm trying to think, uh, you know, this isn't Christian per se, but Brene Brown, if you're dealing with emotions and, you know, rebuilding your personhood and figuring out who you are, anything Brene Brown is going to be really helpful in walking through that process. I would recommend, too, if you're coming out of purity culture, The Combo of Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen Kobes Dumez and The Making of Biblical Womanhood by Beth Allison Barr. Uh, just uh, it'll make you feel less crazy, I promise, uh, when you see how some of this evangelical culture has been manufactured. Uh, we put a couple TikToks in the notes for this. Uh, our Tallahassee leader, Piper, is at CBFPLR on TikTok. She talks a lot about what it was like to be a pastor's kid and what it was like to be uh, raised in this conservative tradition other people there are Abraham Piper and Joe Lumen. Um, both of those are people that are talking about these topics a lot. And I've heard, I, I do not do TikTok, but if you search for deconstruction, you're going to find a ton of different people talking about it. So that's always an option. Any other things come to mind for you, Ryan? I think just li for me, lived experiences are really where it's at is somebody yeah. who worked in the church for so long and now who's been out of the local church vocational world for as long as I have now, I really have just gleaned a lot just from rubbing shoulders with people in the real world. Yeah. And, and um, yeah, I, I, anyway, a lot of good people out there. So don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to meet new people. Yeah. And don't be afraid of other traditions. Like if you get the opportunity to, to go to synagogue with someone or hang out with the Buddhist your Buddhist friends or, you know, those are enriching, enlivening experiences to see how other people connect to the divine. And so I would, I would just encourage you to see if there's an interfaith group in your community that you could visit or, you know, just get to know people of other traditions that really helps. Well, good stuff. I'm glad that we're back at it again. Yep. We, for those of you who are listeners, we do apologize, but we are going to do our best to give you guys <laughs> some good listenings in the days ahead. So if you like what you yep. hear, share it online. If you've never uh, gone to our iTunes account, maybe you can rate it and then review it and share that with your friends via the interweb. So hashtag Ruthiology. Thanks for listening. We're so glad you're here and uh, keep an ear out as we get more stuff up in this new world that we're in. P.S. I'm going to be at McAfee School of Theology uh, when Piper, speaking of Piper, she's going to be joining and we're going to be interviewing Otis Moss III at the end of February. So uh, That sounds stay, so cool. Stay tuned for that. We'll promote that on our, our Facebook page and Instagram and all that. So we, we like the people at McAfee School of Theology. And uh, sadly, Janelle won't be joining us, uh, but she will be with us in spirit. And she will, she will, Absolutely. And you'll hear her on the podcast when it's released, too. She'll get <laughs> to do the intro. <laughs> yep. Yep. It'll be awesome. All right. Take care, everybody. All right. Peace.